Hi, I'm Bob Eckblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple, Word, Spirit, Justice, and Mission. Today I want to talk with you about Jesus' teaching to his disciples regarding defense, homeland defense or national defense, defense of Jesus himself and of the Jesus movement, perhaps um, understood now as defense of, say, religious freedom or, you know, the right to worship as we please, and um, even personal defense. And this is a question that is really on a lot of our minds right now, especially when we think of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine and all the calls to arm the Ukrainian people, to set up a no-fly zone. You know, yesterday, President Joe Biden, he approved a new $800 million security assistance package for the Ukraine, and that brings U.S. military aid to that country up to $1 billion since last year. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden, Biden, he says, the world is united in our support for Ukraine and our determination to make Putin pay a very heavy price. America is leading this effort together with our allies and partners, providing an enormous level of security and humanitarian assistance that we're adding to today. So that's something that Biden just said yesterday in a press conference. And many European countries are doing the same thing. You know, Germany and um, France, the UK, you know, so many places. And there's a sense of obligation and many Ukrainians, too, are feeling really torn up about this situation. And understandably, they're watching um, their cities being bombed and a lot of people being killed, citizens and or civilians and also, you know, uh, soldiers and people that are part of the resistance. And, of course, Russian soldiers are dying. And it's, it's just heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking to watch this situation. And um, we're all being stirred up. And, and there's reason to be stirred up. And yet the question of how do we respond as Christians is really needs to be on our heart and we need to make sure that we're being informed from above, so to speak, from, you know, from the perspective of heaven, from the perspective of Jesus, who is the one that we claim is our teacher. And if we're a disciple, then we're a student of Jesus. So Jesus, um, we, we see that in Luke chapter 21, the disciples are talking about the temple and how it was adorned with beautiful stones. And Jesus tells them, as for these things which you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. And Jesus says nothing about uh, defending the temple, defending Jerusalem, keeping that from happening. And uh, instead, he responds to the, his disciples' questions about when that's going to take place. And what he says is, see to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. So one of the biggest concerns Jesus has is that there will be many coming who will mislead uh, many people. And what are the, some of the ways that we might be misled now? You know, one way might be that um, we might think that the salvation of the Ukrainian people really is up to the Western um, nations, especially NATO and the United States. Like, if we don't respond, if we don't uh, establish this no-fly zone, if we don't give all the weapons that are necessary and increase the economic sanctions and do all that we can, then um, the Ukrainian people are not going to be saved. 
or if Ukrainians don't give their life, then the Ukraine won't be won't be saved, won't be properly defended, and all that. So, but Jesus is saying many will come and saying, "I am He, I am the Christ," right? And the Christ is the Savior, the one who is the Anointed One who represents God, and who brings about the victory. And I think there are many that are that are wanting the say NATO to be the Christ or or the United States, and um, and there are many that are claiming that that's exactly what we should do. We need to be united, and 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 people are saying we've never been more united since the Cold War than we are right now um, in our disagreement with in our antagonism towards Russia, who's the aggressor. Jesus says, "Do not go after them." But when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. Okay, that's easier for us to say who are far away from the front lines of the conflict with Russia or with, uh, you know, in Yemen or Syria or in a place where there's, there's currently war. Um, but Jesus is saying this to everyone, to the people in the midst of conflict zones and to us, us as well. When you hear of wars and disturbances, when you think of the possibility of a nuclear confrontation even, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Okay, so Jesus is warning us that we're going to see nations rising up against nations. That's what he says next. Nation will rise against nation and kingdoms, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues. Okay, we're definitely in the middle of that right now, or coming out of it, actually, hopefully, and famines, and, you know, famines are really in the, in the making as well. Um, and uh, there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And hopefully that's not talking about um, a nuclear holocaust or anything of the sort. Um, but before all these things, um, and now here Jesus is saying, look, it's not just that this is going to be happening out there to them among the nations, right? But we too will be directly involved, we as disciples of Jesus. They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you in delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And so Jesus doesn't want us to be stressed about that either, right? In fact, Jesus turns it all around and says in verse 13, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. And so Jesus is saying, like, this is going to happen. Uh, there's going to be persecution against against followers of Jesus. And we mustn't be about defending ourselves against that. Rather, we should see it as an opportunity to bear witness. And then Jesus says, uh, not to stress out about that either. He says in verse 14, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. Okay, so wow, Jesus is not even about self-defense when it comes to bearing witness when we're when we're being persecuted, when we're brought before the authorities. He says um, in verse 15, For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. So wow, that's the prophetic um, you know, word, really, that we, we are guaranteed to be given according to Jesus. He's saying um, that we don't need to prepare. Um, but we will be um, will be given. Okay, it's like gift, utterance, and wisdom. You know, utterance is like um, that's the language of revelatory. You know, words that actually come from God that are that are given by God, given by Jesus, 
and um, and wisdom that um, no one will be able to resist or refute. Wow. So um, do we believe that? And are we remembering this? Are we are we schooling ourselves and preparing ourselves and and taking Jesus's teaching here seriously? Um, Jesus goes on and says, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Okay, so Jesus is offering no promise of protection, and there's no call to defend oneself or to defend the rel- defend oneself from relatives or from people that are going to kill you. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Okay, now Jesus says, yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. So this is a different version of uh, what we saw last week with uh, a couple weeks ago in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, you know, the one who endures the lawlessness to the end will be saved, right? Enduring the lawlessness and not letting the love grow cold. Here Jesus says we're going to gain our lives by our endurance in the face of persecution and in the midst of nations battling out against nations. And now here, Jesus gets even more specific. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, okay, maybe the equivalent of Jerusalem for us would be, say, Washington, D.C. or New York City, or for others, it would be Paris or London or, you know, whatever your city is. Maybe it's Kiev or uh, one day Moscow. Then recognize that her desolation is near. Okay, so when you see the armies surrounding, recognize that desolation, I mean, destruction is coming even of Jerusalem, which is the, the holy city. Then what are we to do? Are we to get our arms together and receive all the military assistance from whoever would, would offer it to us? Uh, no. Verse 21. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. And then Jesus goes on and talks about how many will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led into captive, kept, led as captives into the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And all of these are signs prior to the return of Christ. And so, once again, there's no call to defend, no call to, uh, to arms. And, and Jesus goes you know, on and in verse 34. He says, be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And that's Jesus' teaching right before he and his disciples prepare and then eat the Passover in Luke 22, and um, and Jesus gives the Passover, you know, the, he breaks the bread and, and, and passes out the cup and offers his body and his blood to them. And right after that, they get into this crazy discussion about who's the greatest, uh, seem to be missing the point completely, like we often do. And, um, and then Jesus uses the opportunity, though, and says, for who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? And Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves. And um, 
And I love what he says after this, you know, to these disciples who don't seem to really get it, like maybe we don't either. He says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and you may sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he tells um, Simon that he's going to be sifted like wheat. and But then when he comes back from the trials that happened to him um, and his denial, which Jesus predicts in the next verse, he says, um, you know, when you come back, strengthen your brothers and sisters, right? So then we have this famous verse where in verse 35, he says to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? Okay, and this is referring to Luke chapter 9 and then also Luke chapter 10. You know, when Jesus uh, sent out his disciples, he gave them power and authority to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and he sent them um, without um, money, without a bag, without sandals, like they were just supposed to go out in total vulnerability as missionaries and to receive hospitality from the people that welcomed them. And so they were to go out as guests, as vulnerable guests, and then pray for the people that were sick and in the place, um, announcing the kingdom of God. And, um, and so Jesus's question here is, like, when I sent you out that way, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing. And so then now Jesus gives this instruction. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and to buy one. So Jesus is, is Jesus changing his missionary strategy? Is this no longer applicable, this approach in Luke 9 and 10, where Jesus sends them out without money and in vulnerability to go as guests? I don't think so, because we see in the book of Acts after Pentecost that, you know, the first miracle story after Pentecost is Peter and, and John who are going in um, together, in two of them, um, without money, you know, and they meet someone who's uh, being brought to sit at the outside the temple gate to beg for alms, and he's expecting money from them, and they say silver and gold we do not have. So there they were, they were they were going together as a pair, and they they didn't have money, and then what they said is, um, but what we have we give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth get up and walk. And then that's the first miracle after Pentecost. And after that, we see that the disciples, they went out in this sort of itinerant way like Jesus had. And Paul himself went out and was dependent upon the people oftentimes. And, um, but not, not 100%, like there were times when Paul is described as being a tent maker. And so here, Jesus, is he, I don't think he's He's just disregarding and saying that was like a previous dispensation or, you know, it's no longer valid. But I think more he's saying, look, you trusted me then and everything worked out. So now I have another word for you in this moment when persecution is upon us. And, um, and that's that whoever has a money belt is to take it along. And um, likewise, also a bag. And I wonder whether that's because now that this persecution is really um, happening, and a time of persecution was uh, was going to 
you know, was really beginning with Jesus's crucifixion. Now, perhaps it would be dangerous to actually um, receive hospitality from people because if if the soldiers, you know, or the temple police or, you know, any kind of antagonists were looking for you and they found that you were being lodged by somebody, maybe that family would be in danger. Um, I led the Bible study with a bunch of Russian guys in a recovery house in Krasnodar this um, a couple nights ago. And I asked the guys, I said, in Russia, if, if someone was, you know, was running from the law and they were lodged by, you know, by a family, you know, what would happen if the, if the soldiers came to the house, you know, and they, and they, and they knew that the criminal that they were looking for, the lawbreaker was inside the house and, and, you know, and they said, oh, it'd be super dangerous for the family. I mean, they, they could all be, you know, they could all be arrested or they could be shot. And, uh, you know, so I wonder whether Jesus is saying, you know, during a time of persecution, you know, when you're running and when you're viewed as outlaws and um, in this sort of guerrilla movement stage of the kingdom of God's advance, you know, whether they need to be more sort of uh, independent in a way. And of course, Paul, he was a tent maker. He didn't just depend upon people. So maybe Jesus here is just showing them and us that this isn't like a one approach all the time, forever and ever. You know, we need to be listening and getting instructions that are relevant to the times that we're living in. And uh, what's strange, though, about this is that Jesus says, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and to buy one. And um, what is he talking about there? And is this giving uh, followers of Jesus sort of a, a green light to arm ourselves? You know, I grew up in a family where uh, the right to bear arms was really stressed and you know, my father believed that it was important for every citizen, himself and ourselves included, to to be able to take personal responsibility for our own self-defense. And so my dad, he had a 357 Magnum revolver that was under the front seat of his car. I remember it knowing it was a loaded gun that was, was there for a number of years, and I don't remember when he stopped doing that. But I grew up just assuming that that was important and I went through my gun safety training course at age probably 11, and um, my dad bought me a high-powered hunting rifle for my 13th birthday, and I, um, you know, and I and I grew up with guns, and like so many Americans and others around the world, and you know, and now there is just such an emphasis on on arming ourselves. Like here in the United States, there's been a lot of talk of the potential of civil war with, with the culture wars, you know, and, um, you know, after uh, Trump's d election defeat, you know, the incidents around January 6th and, you know, the uproar and all the accusations about Biden stealing the election. And, uh, you know, this last year, arms sales have gone up just way through the ceiling. And, you know, many, many people are, are buying guns and Christians included. And, um, you know, I myself needed to get rid of a gun that I'd um, sort of confiscated from someone. And so I went to one of these gun places that sell, you know, sell firearms and to sell, you know, just to offload this gun that I didn't want in my house. And I used that as an opportunity to really find out what people were thinking. And I, um, so I went to several places and I would interview the people. And, you know, first person I said, oh, well, 
So how are, how are things going right now? There's some, um, are you, you guys selling many guns? And they're like, oh yeah, I mean, we, we just can't keep enough in stock. We've never done better business than right now. And, and I'm, oh really? So what, what do you think is leading to that? Why, uh, why are you selling so much? And he looked at me like I was kind of stupid and said, oh, well, there's all these criminals that are getting out of prison on a regular basis and they're coming out into our streets and, you know, and there's just uh, a lot of, uh, you know, fear out there of just uh, the possibility of just civil war and confrontation. And, you know, and he, um, and I said, well, you know, I know lots of felons and, you know, people that are coming out of prison and, you know, a lot of them are trying to stay completely clear of any kind of criminal activity. And, you know, they certainly don't want to catch a gun charge and then go off to prison for something like that. So uh, I said, are you ever worried about all these people that are buying guns? And, you know, a couple of them admitted, they said, oh yeah, I mean, actually we're uh, quite worried because most of the guns we're selling are to people that have never owned a gun. And, um, you know, one guy said, I would never go to a firing range because you, you could easily get shot by the person beside you because most of the people that are learning how to f fire these weapons, they've, they're completely inexperienced. And I said, yeah, I, I noticed that just driving on the freeway, there's a lot of very aggressive drivers and I worry about them being some of these, you know, weapons owners. And the guy looked at me and goes, yeah, yeah, me too. And so even these gun salesmen were, you know, were talking about, um, you know, both, I guess, the justification for, for being armed themselves, but also the dangers of people arming themselves. So, you know, right now, you know, weapons are on a lot of people's minds. And, um, and as I mentioned, you know, Biden just uh, offered $800 million, bringing up, um, you know, the, the total amount of $1 billion to the Ukraine. And, um, and of course, that's one of our greatest, our number one exports is weapons. And, and that's the case for France and for the UK and, and also for China and a lot of other countries. But, um, Let's go back to this text and see what Jesus is saying and what he isn't saying. Okay, because um, is Jesus suggesting then that every disciple, uh, we should sell our coat even and buy, a, uh, you know, a sword? Of course, obviously, it's not a, a gun. It's not a handgun. It's it's a sword. And what what kind of sword? You know, I, I looked this up a little bit and I found out that um, the sword in Greek, it's the makaira. Is, uh, was a large knife used for killing animals and cutting up flesh, okay, like a butcher knife, or um, a small sword. And this is the term that is often used for, you know, for just dying by the sword or whatever. You know, so we may think of it as like, um, a, you know, what the knights would use in the, you know, in the Middle Ages or whatever, but I think it's more like a dagger. And, um, and so Jesus is saying, you know, buy one. And, um, is Jesus then saying that we should be prepared and um, have weapons either to use uh, for self-defense or perhaps even, uh, you know, to attack? Or is he, um, you know, what is he saying here exactly? So one of the keys, I think, is verse 37. Jesus says, for I tell you that this is, um, which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered among the transgressors, or another word for transgressors would just be the criminals, the lawbreakers. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment, Jesus says. 
So then they say, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Okay, so right there, Jesus is giving us two key points. He's saying two swords for 12 people. That's 11 disciples because Judas is, you know, about to betray him. He's not with them. And Jesus, so two swords, um, two of these daggers enough to defend 12 people? I don't think so. And uh, so this isn't like one weapon per person or anything of the sort. And um, it's definitely not an AR-15 or, you know, some kind of high-powered automatic uh, weapon. We're talking about a dagger, two daggers, and that being enough. And um, this verse that says he was numbered with the transgressors, that's referencing the servant of the Lord, Psalm, the, the song of the servant, the fourth song in Isaiah chapter 53 where Jesus is, uh, it's, it's attributed to Jesus in numerous places. You know, he, um, I'm just going to read some of this because uh, I think the setting of, of uh, the, whole, the whole text of Isaiah 53, we're not going to read that whole thing right now, but numbered among the transgressors is in the section that is, uh, you know, beginning in verse um, 50, Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men and women hide their face, he was despised and we did not value him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. So he was pierced through. No defense, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, or the crimes of all of us, to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. So no, no self-defense. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, and he was was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So that um, he was assigned with wicked men. Um, he was numbered with the transgressors. Transgressors is the Greek version of that. And and so what does that mean that he was numbered with the transgressors? Jesus himself never carried a weapon in this story. And we're going to see that in a minute. But there was somebody that was with him who who did use a weapon. And um, and so let's see what what how that plays out in the rest of the story. Now, right after this comes this story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 39. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
I wonder what the temptation would be if now they're to have money, you know, and a bag and a sword, or at least just two among the 12 of them. What might be the temptation prior to Jesus's arrest and crucifixion? And then Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So the cup was the cup of, cup of his suffering, the cross. And Jesus is saying, Father, if you're willing, you know, remove it from me. But of course, not my will, but yours. And now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. So that apparently was very necessary even for Jesus to be strengthened by an angel as he was facing this cup. And, um, and behold, being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So facing violence, you know, facing arrest, um, being beaten, being crucified, being mocked, you know, being tortured there, and uh, what Jesus faced, terrifying, right? And um, here's Jesus just prior and when he could have ran from the scene and um, or called his disciples to defend him. You know, rather Jesus is, um, you know, he's in agony and his sweat is becoming like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So we're seeing that even for Jesus, this was extremely difficult, you know, to be, to be facing his own um, death at the hands of sinners. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. So, you know, Jesus here, I think, is showing us that, you know, like facing uh, an invasion, facing war, violence, um, the threat of, you know, a physical death or arrest or torture or anything, definitely there's nothing, nothing easy about this. This is difficult for Jesus and so much sorrow for the disciples. And he says to them, why are you sleeping? Okay, like, in other words, um, like, that's a question. Why are they sleeping? Is it, is it, are they trying to escape the, the anguish, the agony? I mean, I think, I think I, I can identify with wanting to do that. Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Get up and pray. So Jesus's response is to get up and pray, you know, not to take up arms not to flee even in this case, but to get up and pray that you may not enter, enter into temptation. So what might be the temptation that we would face right now when we think about um, the need of the Ukrainian people to, uh, you know, to respond in some way to the violence that's, that's, that, that is coming their way, you know, the threats to their personal safety, you know, what might be some of the temptations, their temptations, what might be our temptation as followers of Jesus in terms of the way we think and how we think we should respond. Maybe our temptation would be to just say, well, of course, violence is necessary. I I don't believe in this way of Jesus. That might be our temptation is to renounce the way of Jesus and to say, well, Jesus is not the Christ. You know, he's not the Christ. His way of dealing with evil, going to the cross, I mean, that's not realistic. That might be our temptation. And many people, really, who claim to be Christians are, are the ones that are stirring up a lot of the violence and that are involved in the violence, both on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side and on the 
NATO side. So right at this point, um, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So there they asked the question, shall we strike with the sword? Here's the perfect opportunity for Jesus to legitimate violence and in terms of self-defense or defense of religious freedom, defense of himself as the Christ, um, defense for them as his disciples. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And before Jesus even responds, one of them, verse 50, struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Okay, so violence happens. Um, the slave of the high priest, an innocent bystander, I would say. He's there by force. He's conscripted. He's a slave. Um, his right ear is cut off. And Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. Okay, so right there, we have some very strong, very clear words of Jesus regarding violence and self-defense. Stop. No more of this. Stop. Doesn't get much clearer than that. And he touched his ear and he healed him. So Jesus undoes the damage that's been done by the violence. And we have Jesus's response to the question, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Stop, no more of this. But it was too late. The violence had already been done. In Matthew 26, 51 to 54, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And here Jesus doesn't immediately heal the ear. Rather, he says to him, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. All those who take up the gun will perish by the gun. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen in this way? So once again, the fulfillment of the scriptures are appealed to. But here in Matthew, unlike any of the other gospel accounts, Jesus really warns about the consequences of choosing self-defense or violence or national defense. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. In John's gospel, we have another um, other words. In John 18, verse 11, Jesus says to Peter, who in this case cuts off the right ear of a slave whose name is mentioned, Malchus, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors right then and there because these disciples with the swords that they carried um, transgressed, didn't they? And, um, and Jesus was numbered among them and he was not, um, he did not distance himself from them. They remained his disciples. In John's gospel, it's Peter who's, who pulls, draws the sword and Jesus tells him, put it back in your sheath. And, um, and so, you know, we know that, that Jesus, you know, he hung around people who did use violence. And he undid the damage, in this case in Luke's gospel, by healing the man's ear. And none of the other gospels is he described as healing the man. 
And, um, but I think it's just, it's just beautiful. But um, today, if somebody defended, um, you know, used violence and cut off somebody's ear or, you know, shot them, and then, um, and then, then they were healed by, you know, by the pastor or, or by somebody who was there who was a Christian, would that person still be guilty of a crime? Uh, in our state, definitely, they'd still be charged, they'd be arrested, you know, for using violence, even if the, the healing happened to undo that, the, the effects of that violence. And here, I just love that Jesus doesn't disassociate from his disciples. You know, he remains a friend of sinners. He remains a friend of the violent. And, um, and so that scripture was fulfilled that um, he was numbered among the criminals. And he's, he continues to be that way today. You know, Jesus um, is a friend of the criminals. I asked my Russian Bible study participants Tuesday night, you know, whether that, how they felt about that. And they said, oh, that's just the best news, you know, uh, for them and for the people that they know. Many of them have been in prison and many of them have used violence. And, you know, um, in Russia, you know, there's there's a lot of knife violence. There's a lot of crowbars that people use to kind of thonk each other on the head with. And, um, and you know, to think of Jesus as someone who, you know, would not give up on anybody, even somebody that used violence um, in a way that, um, like this, is amazing. So why then the swords, you know, is um, the, the presence of those two swords, these, these two daggers among Jesus's disciples, was that, in a way, um, a way to give an opportunity for Jesus to clarify um, that swords are not to be used for violence? You know, that weapons are not to be used for self-defense? You know, if those weapons hadn't have been there in the hands of these disciples, then there wouldn't have been an opportunity for such clear teaching, would there? You know, that's one um, answer to this, to this issue that I find really attractive. Um, and the other issue is that is what Jesus himself says. It's, uh, uh, for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the criminals, with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And so that's Jesus's answer, is that, is that what was written about being um, a person who, 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 who hung out with criminals. And... Um, and maybe that even justified his arrest, you know, because uh, that's what happens next, right? And Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who'd come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? So I love this because Jesus confronts his defenders, his disciples, but then he confronts the religious leaders with their violence. You know, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? Okay, well, yes, they have, haven't they? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. You know, one of the reasons that um, Judas was recruited was because they, the religious leaders, they didn't want to arrest Jesus in front of the crowds. And so they needed to know where they could find him when he wasn't surrounded by the people who hung on his every word and were benefiting from his healing. And so um, 
Judas was the one who knew where he was going to be on the Mount of Olives. And, and so um, that's the power of, of darkness, right? Is, is them being able to come with a betrayer and to seize him under the cover of darkness. And it's that cover of darkness that, you know, we, you know, we still live in now. And, um, and Jesus is wanting us to be prepared and, um, and, to, and to be really ready and, um, and to be training ourselves as his disciples. And, um, and what does that training involve? Well, if we look back at just verse 20, chapter 22, Jesus says, you know, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So maybe some of us have weapons. We, maybe we have knives and we have guns, and um, but we need to pray that we not enter into temptation. And not in, entering into temptation may may involve getting rid of those weapons so that they're they're not there to tempt us. Um, I know that for Gracie and I, you know, we lived in Honduras during a time when there were a lot of accusations that we were communists, and and there were people that were being um, arrested, being kidnapped. And um, there was the op, the op, the, you know, the possibility that could happen to us. And we had people warning us. You know, we lived way out in a, you know, on a farm out in the outskirts of the town. And um, you know, our our colleague Don Fernando, he had a, he had dogs, and I think he might have had a, you know, some weapon. I know he had a machete. But um, and people told us you should you should have a gun. You should have a machete. And we. And we felt like we just were called to not do that, to, you know, to to really uh, trust in God. And um, so we deliberately refused to have a machete be by our door and, um, you know, where we were sleeping and, um, and to not have any weapons. And often we were very afraid. We would hear our neighbor's dog, Don Fernando's dog, barking in the middle of the night. We would hear noises outside. You know, twice we had people try to set fire to all the fields around our house, and we had big walls of flames coming right towards our wooden house, you know, that we had to battle and combat in the middle of the night two different times. And so, you know, it wasn't, it was a real, there was real danger that we lived in for a couple of years. And, and so we would wake up often just kind of panicking and, and just read the Psalms and read the Gospels and, and pray. And, uh, and it was that prayer that would finally bring us to a place of peace. And, um, you know, and, and our lives, you know, not, nothing happened. We didn't lose even a single hair and, uh, you know, and our lives were spared. And I believe we're called in these difficult days and these days when violence is on the rise everywhere and there's calls for, um, and, and justifications for defense, national defense, self-defense. Now is the time to really, uh, go to a higher level in our prayer and in our, um, in our spiritual, you know, kind of growing, trying to grow and to imagine scenarios and to prepare ourselves to flee situations, even if necessary. You know, in the end, we felt led to just leave Honduras and to, and that's what led us into our theological formation period in France and, you know, and, and, and into where we are now. And, um, and so, I'd like us to just pray right now that God would just help us to hear his voice and to and to really seek the, th the wisdom from above as we as we think about 
you know, these questions of, of national defense and self-defense. So God, our Father, thank you for your love for all of us. And I pray that um, you would bring to memory, bring to mind the teachings of Jesus regarding um, how do we deal with enemies. You know, you say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And here you say, um, you know, you say, pray, lest you fall into temptation. And elsewhere you say, watch and pray. And I ask for you, Jesus, to um, teach us and to help us and to strengthen us. And I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to strengthen us to, and that we would have your wisdom and your mindset regarding um, violence and defense and and that we would listen to you, Lord. You know, um, we wouldn't be like the disciples that just asked the question, should we draw our swords and and then just draw our swords and act or pull out our guns and shoot. But Lord, let us uh, be people who wait for your word and then obey your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.